Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther uh, chapter 2. Uh, Esther chapter 2, we're going to be picking it up in verse uh, 19, and then we're going to take it all the way through uh, chapter 3 this morning. Uh, as always, I'd encourage you to bring bring a Bible. If you don't have one or forget yours, there's always some in the back or out in the lobby. Feel free to grab one of those. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you. Well, one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War uh, came at the Battle of Antietam in 1862. And this was a battle that only lasted for about 12 hours, but over 20,000 both Confederate and Union troops were killed. And this battle was essentially a draw, but what was surprising about it was that a mediocre Union general named George McClellan was able to hold off the brilliant Robert E. Lee. And uh, Lee was trying to invade uh, Maryland, uh, but, but McClellan had positioned his troops in such a way they were able to force uh, the Confederates back across the Potomac. Now, Lee and other generals didn't have much respect for McClellan, and so they couldn't figure out why he was so quick to counter their attacks and why they were holding them, them off. How was this possible? Well, you see, before the battle, two of the Union soldiers had found a copy of Lee's battle plans and had delivered them to McClellan before the battle. And so the Union general and the soldiers, they knew the plan of the enemy. And because they knew the plan, they were able to drive the enemy back. And church, this morning we are going to see as we continue to preach through the book of Esther that the people of God, we too have an enemy. And it's an ancient enemy that has been trying to destroy the people of God ever since the Garden of Eden. And we've seen this enemy launch attacks all throughout history, including here in the book of Esther. Now, in our own strength, we are no match for our enemy, but God has given us his word, and through it, he has shown us the plans of the enemy and how the enemy operates. And so, yes, through his word, we know the enemy's plans, but we also know God's promises, God's promises. And even when the enemy plots and schemes against God's people, we know that God's presence is with us. And David writes in Psalm 31, which is uh, what we'll use to both kind of start and end the sermon today. Uh, David writes in Psalm 31, verse 19, he says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness. I love that. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence... You hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Now let me remind you, church, that the title of this sermon series, the time that we're in Esther, we're calling it God on Every Page. And we're calling it that sort of ironically because God is actually not mentioned on any page in the story of Esther. And yet, as we're seeing this story unfold, we cannot help but see God on every page. And my prayer for us is that not only would we see God on every page of the story of Esther, but that we would also see God on every page of our life. Because there are pages of your life where the enemy has been plotting and scheming for your destruction. But church, when the enemy plots and schemes, we need not fear, we need not grow anxious, 
and we need not be confused by this. We know his tactics, we know his plans, and we know that our great King Jesus is ever present with us. Therefore, therefore, we can trust God even when his providence seems contrary to his promises. Okay, let me say that again. We can trust God even when his providence seems contrary to his promises. That's what we're going to see this morning as we see this story uh, play out. So let me, let me pray for us one more time and we'll jump into the text. Uh, pray with me. Father God, this is your word, and these are your people. Lord God, we ask for your help and your strength as we go about the business of preaching your word and receiving and hearing your word. Lord, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, we believe, but but help our unbelief. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Jesus so that our eyes, the eyes of our heart might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope that you have called us to and the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Lord, help us know the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, look with me now at Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 19. And uh, I'm not going to reread everything Robin just read for us, but I'm going to summarize a little bit, okay? So Esther 2, verse 19. Here we see Mordecai, uh, who we met last week. He's sitting at the king's gate, and he overhears uh, an assassination plot uh, that two of the eunuchs are uh, plotting and scheming. Now, we don't know why Bigthan and Teresh are angry with Xerxes. Uh, you know, the, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, but at the very least, they're possibly angry at Xerxes because they are, in fact, eunuchs. And that, I think, in and of itself uh, gives them a justifiable right to be a little angry and upset. Uh, but we don't know. We don't know why they're wanting to assassinate Xerxes. But we do know that they're not the only ones that want to because history tells us that later on Xerxes will, in fact, uh, be assassinated. Okay? But Mordecai, he hears about this plot. He tells Esther, who has now been elevated to Queen Esther. So Mordecai takes this news to Queen Esther, uh, who Esther then tells the king. The empire investigates this. They find it to be true. And these two eunuchs are then hung on the gallows. Which being hung on the gallows, uh, what that means in Persia, uh, it's typically impaling someone on a stake or a pole. Okay, uh, that's how Persia did it. A big pole, a pointy part, and people were impaled on that. All right. The Romans came after them and developed uh, the cross and crucifixions. But the Persians had long poles that they would impale people on. And so here we see two eunuchs. They're plotting, scheming. Mordecai finds out about it, tells the queen, and they save King Xerxes. And then look at the text. Notice the reward that Mordecai gets. Oh, wait. Mordecai doesn't get immediately rewarded, right? It's, it's recorded in the book of Chronicles, but that's, that's it for right now. 
which this would be a little shocking because you see Persian kings were, were known for their generosity with those who were loyal to them. And so generally they, they would immediately reward someone with a, with a big kind of grandiose, generous gesture. But it would seem, at least right now, that Mordecai has been overlooked, right? Mordecai just saved the king and he has not been immediately rewarded for that. Well, what about, what about you, church? Can you feel a little bit of Mordecai's pain here? Uh, do you ever get discouraged that you are not immediately rewarded for doing the right thing? Do you ever get discouraged that, it is, that sometimes it seems like those who are doing the wrong thing, they are the ones that are getting the promotion. They are the ones that are getting advancements. They are the ones that are getting recognition, but not you. Now, don't, don't miss the twist in the plot line, okay? Because just when you would expect to read uh, that Mordecai was rewarded with a promotion, right? That's what we should be thinking this next verse should say. Just when we would expect Mordecai to be getting a promotion, uh, uh, that is not what happens. So look at then chapter 3, verse 1. Look what chapter 3, verse 1 says. It says, After these things, King Xerxes promoted Mordecai. No, it doesn't say that. It says, After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the, official, uh, the, the officials who were with him. Okay, so here we see Haman, not Mordecai, gets the promotion. Haman is promoted to second in command only to Xerxes, and therefore everyone now is supposed to bow to Haman, just like they would have to bow to Xerxes. But then we see that Mordecai does not bow. Mordecai does not bow. Now let's clear up some misconceptions here because this is not the same as when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, or, or Benny, if you prefer the VeggieTales version, uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down to the, the, the gold statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? This is not the same. That's, that's not exactly what's happening here, okay? That was a worship thing, right? The, those, uh, those three guys didn't want to break God's command to have a another God before, uh, before the Lord, right? That, but, but this is likely not a worship thing that Mordecai is protesting, okay? It's thought that Mordecai likely on many occasions bowed to Xerxes, but there's something here that, that he, he can't bow to Haman. You see, the bowing that often occurred in the Persian Empire, it was more of a sign of respect than it was a worshiping that person, okay? Much like you would bow to the Queen of England nowadays. And so Mordecai doesn't do it, though. Mordecai, you know, he probably many times had bowed to Xerxes, but he's not going to bow to Haman. And he tells them why. He says, because he's a Jew, the same thing that he told Esther to keep quiet about, he goes ahead and says, he says, because he's a Jew. And so, yes, he says he's a Jew, but, but what about being a Jew is keeping him from showing respect to Haman, right? That, and, and, that, and that's where we don't really know for sure, right? We can't get inside Mordecai's head and his heart and really know what his motivations were here. Like, is he, is he jealous that maybe Haman got the promotion instead of him? Or, or, or maybe... Is this a conflict that runs much deeper and much longer than what we would pick up on at first read? You see, here's what we know about Haman, okay? The author calls him Haman the Agagite. Well, to understand who, 
who an Agagite was, we have to understand who Agag was, okay? Agag was the king of the Amalekites during the time of King Saul. Well, let's go a little farther back. Who are the Amalekites, all right? So walk with me in history, and we'll come back to Esther. Okay, the Amalekites were the first people group to attack the people of God once they had been rescued and freed from slavery in Egypt while they're wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. And, uh, and what the Amalekites did was they attacked kind of the rear of the caravan of God's people that consisted mainly of the faint and the weary and the sick and many women and children. And so the Amalekites were sort of like the the world's first terrorist group, like striking a soft target, right? They, they're kind of picking off uh, uh, kind of the wandering, this wandering people group and uh, many of the weaker portions of that group. And because of this wicked attack by the Amalekites, God's people, uh, by, uh, on God's people, God tells Moses, hey, once you are settled in the land, wipe out the Amalekites. Flash forward now to the days of King Saul, okay? Uh, King Saul, he's leading God's people. God instructs him through the prophet Samuel to go take out King Agag and the Amalekites, right? God has not forgotten what they did to his people in the wilderness. Uh, Saul then does attack the Amalekites, but he spares King Agag's life and keeps some of the best sheep and cattle, and by doing so, he disobeys God's command. Now flash forward to the time of Esther, and here we see a descendant of Agag still raging war on the people of God, all because of Saul's disobedience. If you, if you tracked with me through that little history there, like you, you need to see that sin has generational effects and consequences down the line. Because get this, look at, look at Mordecai's genealogy. You can either turn there, or I think up on the screen, Esther 2, verse 5. Esther 2, verse 5. Look at Mordecai's genealogy. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now we don't know this for sure, but most commentators believe Kish to be the same Kish that was King Saul's dad. So King Saul disobeyed God roughly 600 years before the time of Esther, and the consequence of that disobedience is still being experienced by one of Saul's great-great-great-grandsons, as well as the people of God all over the Persian Empire who are now going to be put in danger. So maybe this helps you understand this showdown a little bit more, okay? Mordecai, a Jew in the line of King Saul, and Haman, the Agagite, they are squaring off, and Mordecai's not bowing to this dude, right? And Haman is getting furious and angry, and in his rage, not only does he decide he's going to try to destroy Mordecai, but he's going to try to destroy all of Mordecai's people. Which is one of the ways I would like to point out to you how the enemies of God and his people often operate. They often operate out of rage and not out of reason. Rage, not reason. Like Mordecai doesn't bow, doesn't show respect to Haman. And then Haman responds with plotting genocide on a people group. 
Like that's, that's a little bit of an overreaction, don't you think? I mean, that's a little bit of a kind of a, an overcorrection there of, of the offense that was done. And, and now Haman is going to try to take out this people group. He's responding out of rage and not out of reason. Look then back to chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes. Now remember, Esther was crowned in uh, the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, so we're about five years after that. Uh, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, casting lots was much like rolling dice, uh, but they did it in a way to get direction from the divine as to making decisions. And so uh, uh, just store that word pur uh, back in your head for a little bit, because at the end of the story, we're going to see uh, the Feast of Purim uh, get established at the end of this story. And so the lots are cast, the dice are rolled uh, in the first month of the Jewish calendar, and the dice decided, the dice decided, that I I did air quotes for anyone listening online, that sometimes doesn't translate well, the dice decided that in the the twelfth month would be when Haman would propose annihilating the Jews, okay? So this this is 11 months away, all right? They're rolling dice, trying to figure out when Haman's going to propose, they annihilate the Jews, and they decide on the twelfth month, 11 months away. And now look, look back at verse 8. As we're going to see Haman, the enemy of God's people, we're going to see how he acts out of rage and not out of reason and how he's going to get Xerxes to now go along with his plan. And pay attention to this because this is a formula that the enemy will often use to deceive and lead others astray, okay? This is a formula that many false teachers will use when they come to lead you astray. And this is the formula. What he'll do is he will speak a truth, then a half-truth, and then a lie, okay? This is often how people are deceived. Someone's going to come and say a truth, a half-truth, and then a lie, right? The enemy, he's smart enough to not just come out and straight say a lie, but he's not creative enough to really change his tactics. And it's often a truth, then a half-truth, and then a lie. Look with me at at verse 8, and we'll see these things play out. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom. Now that is, that is a true statement, right? There, there are a certain people, the people of God, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples. That is true, okay? Haman says a true thing there in verse 8. But then he continues on. He says, Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Okay, that's, that's the half-truth, okay? Their laws are a little different, but up until this point, we haven't really seen them that, that God's law has kept them from keeping the Persian laws, all right? Like no one's been asked to worship a statue like they were in Babylon. Uh, if anything, we've seen Esther and Mordecai compromise God's law to keep Persian law, right? This is a half-truth, right? This is, yes, it's true, but it's not the full truth. Then here comes the lie in verse 8, and he says, So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. All right, that's the lie. That's the lie. 
Because we know God told Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. It would definitely be to the king's profit to tolerate them, right? But this is Haman's lie. He says it's not to our benefit to tolerate them. Haman comes to Xerxes with a truth, a half-truth, and a lie. And then get this, now he's going to ice the cake with a bribe. All right, he's going to ice the cake with a bribe. Verse 9 if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Well, you might be thinking, okay, how much is 10,000 talents of silver? Is that a lot? Is that a little? What's going on? Uh, 10,000 talents of silver would be roughly two-thirds of the yearly revenue for the whole Persian empire. Okay, remember the Persian Empire is a vast empire, very wealthy empire. Remember, they're the ones with like gold couches and their military outpost tents, right? This is like they're loaded, right? So two thirds of the yearly revenue for the Persian Empire being given in one gift. Like that's, that's a big bribe, okay? This is a big bribe. We don't even know if really Haman can deliver on this, but he's giving Xerxes a huge, big bribe. So Haman comes to Xerxes with a truth, a half-truth, and a lie, and then he covers it with a bribe, all right? Haman's pride is so wounded by one man not bowing to him that he wants to attempt to annihilate a people group from the face of the earth. He's operating out of rage and not from reason. Like, and so he goes into this, you right, truth, half-truth, lie. And as he's doing this, he's kind of even starting to play the victim card, right? Like Xerxes, these people, they're breaking our laws. They're not bowing down to us. They're hurting our pride and our ego. It's not to our benefit to tolerate them anymore. Like I know this whole Persian empire being tolerant of religions, it was all well and good for a little while, but now there is one whose intolerance is oppressing us and we have to get rid of them, right? That's essentially what Haman here is doing. And listen, church, we see the same sort of thing happening today in our culture and in our society. Rene Girard was a French uh, philosopher who passed away just a few years ago, uh, but he described our culture in the West as one obsessed with victims and scapegoats. He described our culture as one obsessed with victims and scapegoats. You see, generally speaking, even though the majority of our culture does not look to God's word as a moral standard, we still, ha still all have some things that we agree on. And right now in our culture, we can all still agree that oppression is a bad thing. Like, we all still agree on that. No one likes a bully, right? We can all agree that oppression is a bad thing. Therefore, if you can claim victim status and you can point to a certain person or institution or system or family that has oppressed you, then by doing that, you can acquire a large amount of cultural power and influence in our society. And so what this French philosopher noticed was that by looking at our culture, he's noticed that when someone obtained this victim status, that they could then rise above any moral responsibility or scrutiny. 
right? Therefore, any future actions of a victim, even if they were wrong or sinful, to be politi- politically correct, they would need to be overlooked because they w- what they were doing was only being done because of the past oppression that they had experienced. Now, the problem is what this creates in a society is this essentially creates a race to the bottom of the oppression food chain. Right? Because if I can show that I'm more of a victim than you are, then all my wrongdoing is justified and all yours is demonized. And so now what's happening is we've kind of have this new sect of Pharisees arise out of a generation of victims in our culture that they grow in their self righteousness as they can boast more in their victimhood. Because as they become more of a victim, they are trying to find justification for themselves. Which, by the way, is the pursuit of all humanity, to justify themselves. However, we know that justification is only found by faith alone in Christ alone. What Rene Girard also observed was that victimhood can empower others who then advocate on behalf of the victim. Right, So if I can advocate for a victim, then I can uh, leverage that to gain a lot of cultural power and influence. And so even if my arguments are motivated by rage instead of reason, even if I'm telling a truth, a half-truth, and a lie, and even if I'm doing it for selfish reasons, if I can advocate for a victim, then I can gain power and set myself above any sort of criticism. Now, let's, let's take a time out for a second, and let me clarify a few things, okay? Uh, because, listen, there is real oppression in the world, and I'm not trying to downplay that or, or uh, ignore that, right? There, there are real victims in the world, and we should defend those who can't defend themselves, and we should take care of and stand up for the abused and the oppressed and those in need. We should advocate for those who are being oppressed. And some of us are the ones who have been oppressed or are being oppressed currently. But, but here's, here's the difference, okay? Here's the difference between the heart of the people of God, what it should be, and the heart, and many times with the heart of those who are not seeking the Lord, Okay. The people of God should seek to rescue and empower the victim for the glory of God and the good of that person. Right? This is a good thing. The people of God should see oppression, they should see that, and they should step in to rescue and empower the victim for the glory of God and the good of that person. But you see what oftentimes happens from those that are not seeking the Lord, they will often use the victim's or they will use the victimhood to empower themselves in pursuit of their own glory. And so I'm not saying we should disregard those who are oppressed. We should not disregard those who have been victims of past abuse or oppression. But what I'm saying is that I'm, we're seeing something play out in our culture where victims are more being used for the power that someone can leverage by being associated with them rather than actually just someone loving and serving that person, right? Selflessly for the glory of God and the good of that person with no... Uh, with no uh, uh, strings attached with no hidden like ulterior motives. And so I know there's a subtle difference there between how the people of God should be stepping in and rescuing those uh, in oppression and how it often plays out in our culture and in our society. 
Now, let me share one more thought from this French philosopher. And, and trust me, I, I, then I promise we'll get back to the, the Bible. I never thought I would share so much from a French guy whose name was not Calvin. Uh, I feel very weird doing that. Uh, so just one last thing, all right? And this we'll have up on the screen, this quote uh, from this French philosopher. He said, The victims most interesting to us are always those who allow us to condemn our neighbors, and our neighbors do the same. They always think first about the victims for whom they hold us responsible. Now, leave that up there for a little bit, Alyssa. Let's just have us think and dwell on that a little bit, okay? For, for example, I'll try to tie it back to our story in Esther. Haman probably already hated the people of God, right? I'm going to assume that it's not just this one incident that sparked all this hatred for him to want to commit genocide, okay? Like, he had a long family line of hating the people of God, but this one offense by Mordecai gave him the reason he needed to justify that hate to be unleashed, all right? It was, he, he likely had this hatred brewing in him, but he needed something to happen so that he could justify that hate to be unleashed on these people. And so when you see rioting on the news, right? When you see people rioting on the news, there was likely years of hatred and angst and distrust brewing in people's hearts. And then there was something, there was a shooting or something happens that then gives them a reason for that hate to then be unleashed. So when an injustice happens, and then you see people looting a Walmart like some, something has happened there, right? Like that's not always an appropriate response to injustice, right? Why are you looting a Walmart? Like something else is going on there, right? That's not a reasonable response. That's a rage response. There's been hatred in the heart that has just been waiting to come out and needing a reason to then justify that and to come out. And we see this in every sphere in life. We see this in the church, right? Someone's been hurt by the church in the past. Someone has distrust for the church in the past. There's this mild rage that kind of brews in their heart for years. And then one misstep by a pastor, one misstep by a church member, or one victim that they see uh, online that has been hurt by the church, and boom, that's all they needed then to unleash their fury and their wrath and their hatred on the church. We see it in marriage, right? Something's been brewing in the heart of a spouse for years. It's unresolved. And then boom, their spouse missteps. It sets them off with a response of rage instead of reason. And so I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to get political here this morning at all, but I'm not buying the cable news networks from both sides. I'm not buying that they're all that concerned about those being oppressed in the world. Uh, if they can leverage that injustice to then justify them hating uh, other people. But oftentimes we will cling to victims and those that have been oppressed so that we can justify our own hatred of another people group. And that's not right. That's using victims and using oppression as opposed to stepping in and loving and serving and rescuing someone in oppression. So here's Haman, the enemy of God, right? Accusing uh, with a truth, a half-truth, a lie. He then sort of plays a victim card and he ices it with a bribe. Okay, and this is, this is all a part of how the enemy often will attack the people of God, all right? They, they, sometimes the enemies will look like how Haman is looking right now, the, being an instigator and kind of going after on the attack. But not every enemy of God always looks like Haman, 
most look like Xerxes. Okay, so look at Xerxes in verse 10, Esther 3, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Notice what Xerxes doesn't say. Like, he doesn't even ask for the name of the people group that, is, that are going to be annihilated, right? Like, he's not even going to ask anymore. Like, oh, yeah, like, who, so who is this? Who are we wiping out, right? Uh, like, doesn't even question, doesn't ask more kind of follow-up questions as to why they're doing this, right? He's just totally passive here. He's passive, He's standing by as, as evil is kind of advancing and plotting and scheming. And there's a famous quote that says, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Which, which that quote, you know, it's not entirely true. We believe that evil can only have the triumph that God allows it to. Uh, but I, I think there is some truth in that quote because God often does restrain evil by raising up people who will stand against evil and resist. James 4 verse 17, uh, James writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this is often how we see the evil plotting of humanity gain ground when people are passive bystanders. They know the right thing to do. They know the right thing to stand up for. They know the right thing to say. And yet they are passive and they are quiet and they, they just stay idle by as evil schemes and plots and plans. We'll look back at Esther 3. Let's, let's finish out the chapter here in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, and an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors all over the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman and Xerxes, they have a quick chat. Haman has an agenda, which is filled with rage. Xerxes is being super passive and just doesn't care enough to find out more. They make a decree that in 11 months, all the Jews are to be annihilated and all their goods taken. The city is obviously thrown into confusion by this, and Xerxes and Haman just casually sit down to drink. Imagine... Imagine yourself getting a letter in the mail that in 11 months, at the end of the year, all your neighbors have been given permission by the most powerful empire in the world to come and take all your stuff and kill all your family. Like, at the very least, that's going to make 
uh, conversation with your neighbors awkward the rest of the year, right? It's still 11 months away, right? I mean, you're going out, you're mowing your lawn. They're kind of like eyeing your backyard and looking in your windows, just seeing what all you've got in there, right? I mean, this is 11 months away. And here this decree has been made that it says you, people have been given permission to come kill you and take all your stuff. Imagine living And that kind of anxiety for 11 months. I'm not sure how you just go on with life as usual, right? Knowing that there's this like death sentence on you and your family in 11 months. The plotting and the scheming of wicked men like Haman and Agag and Hitler and Stalin and Xerxes and any other world leader you want to throw into there that doesn't fear the Lord, their plotting and their schemes have the potential to create a great amount of anxiety and fear and confusion amongst us. But wouldn't it be something to live a life where even when evil plots and schemes, we didn't have to respond with fear or anxiety or confusion, but instead with a, wow, I wonder what God's purposes are here. Like to not be so enthralled by the plots and the schemes of the enemy, but to be enthralled by the purposes of God in it. Church, God can be trusted even when his providence seems contrary to his promises. I'm sure these 11 months, it was very difficult to to see how his providence, his gracious oversight of the universe, how that was lining up with his providence his promises that he had made to their forefathers, right? I mean, God had promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God had promised David that a descendant of his would forever reign on the throne. But now in Esther chapter three, his providence seems to be contrary to these promises. It seems like they're not lining up and like God's promises are really gonna hold up. And I think we can relate very much to this because don't some things happen in your life that make it seem like God's providence is really running contrary to his promises. For example, Philippians 4.19. You don't have to turn there. It's up on the screen. Uh, Paul's writing to the Philippians. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Aren't there some times that things that happen in your life when it seems like God is not going to meet every need of ours? Right? There are days that I have, there are times, there are seasons that happen where it seems like his providence is not really lining up with his promise. Like, really, is God really going to meet every need of mine according to his riches and glory in Christ? Or Romans 8.28, when Paul's writing to the Romans and he writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, aren't there days when it's really difficult to believe that? And the enemy is, is scheming and plotting for our destruction, destruction and things are happening And when we're under attack either by the enemy or by someone who's not seeking the Lord. And in those times, it is so difficult to trust that 
to trust God when the providence, right, his gracious oversight is not really lining up with the promises that he gives us in Scripture. Or what about when you take a step of faith and you you step out into something that you believe God is calling you into and you do that and then you just feel like under attack by the enemy, just like bad thing after bad thing is happening and you're like, uh, really, God, is this really what you called me to? Is this, is this really, did I hear you correctly? Or like this, it's really hard to trust you right now, God, because I've taken a step out, but it doesn't seem like your providence is lining up with your promises. But church, you see, God loves to take the plotting and the scheming of the enemy, and he loves to turn it for good. Wasn't this what Joseph declared uh, to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, when he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God loves to take the plotting and the planning and the scheming of the enemy, and he loves to turn it for our good. Now, I, I don't know much about uh, martial arts, okay? Maybe some of you do. I, I don't know much. I mean, I do have mastered the, the karate kid uh, one-leg kind of kick thing. I obviously, I've got that down. But uh, other stuff, you know, I'm still, I don't know. But what I've heard is that uh, in judo and jujitsu and probably many other forms of martial arts uh, is that they teach you to use your opponent's weight and strength against them. Right? So if someone is coming to push you or they're lunging at you, you don't necessarily always want to just push back and try to match strength for strength and resistance for resistance. But no, instead, if they're already going to push or lunge and their force is already moving in one direction, then kind of use that force against them. And instead of pushing against, like pull them down onto the ground. Now, God is obviously powerful enough to stop evil in its tracks anytime he wants, okay? But he, for a time, in his wisdom, has allowed evil to persist. Not to prevail, but he has, in his wisdom, allowed evil to persist. But God takes that force of evil and turns it for his glory and his people's good. And church, yes, we do have an enemy who plots and schemes and prowls for our destruction, And just in the same way that he sought destruction of the people of God in the Old Testament because he knew that the promised Messiah was coming through them, right? So he's trying to destroy them. So too, he knows that the salvation of the world is coming through the church, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the world. And so he rages and he thrashes and he lies and he leverages victims and he bribes and he gives people any excuse to release their hate uh, that is in their heart for their neighbor. But church, we need not fear. We need not be anxious. We can respond with patience and grace and reason. We can care for the oppressed and not use the oppressed. Why? Because of the good news of the gospel. You see, we might not be Jews living in the Persian Empire who received Haman's death sentence, but ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, sin, uh, there has been this decree of death that has hung over our heads. The wages of sin is death, and that is a decree that we could not deliver ourselves from. 
And just like Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, so too we refuse to bow our knee to Jesus. But Jesus did not release his wrath on us, but instead he willingly offered up himself to take the decree of death and the wrath that was meant for us. And he did not purchase us with silver coins. He did something, uh, he purchased us with something much more precious, his own blood. And it is by his life and death and resurrection that our enemy has been disarmed and defeated. And though he might rage and thrash for a season, his doom is sure and our life is secure. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. So church, know that God can be trusted even when his providence seems to run contrary to his promises. Do not fear the plots of the enemy, but take refuge in the presence of God made available to us through Jesus. And I want to close with this Psalm, Psalm 31. That was such an encouragement uh, to me this week. Psalm 31, verses 19 and 20 again. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Then verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's who we wait for. We wait for the Lord. Let's let's pray.